Listener Production. Hello, it's Antoinette Latouf here, filling in for Jimmy Rizvi this week as she brings you her chat with Yelena Djokic. Yelena has had a pretty extraordinary tennis career and while she may have left the tennis court, she certainly hasn't left public life. So in this really fascinating chat with Jamila, Yelena explains how she felt pretty lost after retiring and at the time she was only 29. She talks about experiencing body shaming and also the impact her memoir Unbreakable had on her because in it she dug up and she shared a lot of the trauma she's experienced in life. Also, a little later, Helen Smith will bring you the weekend list where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat or listen to. But first, here is Jamila's interview with Elena Dokic and a content warning. This chat does include mentions of DV, suicide and an eating disorder. Elena, welcome to the Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on your beautiful new book, Fearless, Finding the Power to Thrive. Like two books in, you know, only a handful of years. That's quite the achievement. What made you want to put yourself through that again? (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Yeah, if you told me I would write a first one, I would tell you no way. And then if you told me I would write another one, I would also say no, no way. But only because I... Yeah, I just didn't know where I think life will take me after tennis and when I retired. But uh, yeah, when my first book came out exactly now, actually uh, six years ago, uh, it changed my life. I say that the day that Unbreakable came out was the best day of my life. And and I literally mean that. It has changed my life. It has changed uh, quite a few, I think, other people's lives and helped as well. And this book now, Fearless, it it really is a follow-up. My first one was my, it was my life story. It was what I went through. Uh, It was a memoir and a biography. And this book goes a lot deeper into a lot of the things that I went through from abuse to mental health, to talking about an eating disorder, uh, body shaming as well. But ultimately, it is about recognizing uh, trauma. Uh, How do we go from there? How do we go from being a victim to survivor to then being able to actually heal and help others and come out on the other side. I, I do want this book to be ultimately a book of hope and give other people strength and inspiration. But, you know, you said, uh, what makes you put yourself through that? It, it really, to be honest with you, is not difficult. Uh, yes, at times, is it hard to to write a book and, and relive some of those moments? It is. It can be uh, mentally draining because it is a big process in editing it and actually getting it to that kind of printing day and publication day. But I would do it all over again because it has helped me so much. But more importantly, it's actually helped others, which is the most important thing. Can I take you back, Elena, to your retirement from tennis? At that point, sure. the tennis had been your whole life, right? This mm-hmm. had been what you were focused on from such an incredibly young age. And you had that still do, but had that amazing discipline to be able to work at it for hours and hours and hours of every day it came before everything else. What was it like to know that that career that had been such a single focus was at an end and what what did you have in your mind? Did you have plans or hopes or? No, well, that's what I talk about. I, I was lost after retiring. I was only actually 29 when I retired, which is quite young for an athlete and especially a tennis player these days. And I retired because of injury, but also I retired because of um, because of my mental health. Yeah. I battled anxiety, depression, PTSD for more than a decade when I retired. And 
it was tough. I didn't know where I would go from there, but I also wasn't in a position to play anymore. And uh, I had to really reinvent myself and really uh, find out what happiness was privately, but also where do I go from there professionally and what do I do? But most importantly, I had so much trauma and, and so much that I actually had to deal with privately more than actually figuring out from there, what do I do now in my life? Because I hadn't dealt with it. I was raised, I was taught, I was kind of trained to be silent. Mm. And a lot of the things that a lot of people, when you have read in Unbreakable, being a refugee, being bullied, being abused by my father physically and emotionally from the age of six for almost two decades, leaving home uh, at 19 at the same time, almost committing suicide in 2005 and 2006, I had to deal with that. And I hadn't dealt with that because most importantly, I actually didn't know all of these things that I was going through it. Uh, I didn't know that I needed to get help. And that's ultimately what I needed to do. And after I actually retired, I could feel that. I could feel that I wasn't happy. I could feel that I wasn't living. I was existing. And I could really feel like I had to sort out a lot of things privately, even like first before I could even think about, okay, what is life going to be now other than tennis and find that identity. Hmm. You've had enormous success as a commentator as well as a writer um, since your tennis career being a commentator is the very definition of having a voice, right? <laughs> Literally being paid to, to say what you think about tennis. Mm. How was that sort of, I, I suppose, the psychological transition from, from being someone who'd been told to be silent and be quiet to find your voice and then be so willing to share it with people? Well, again, actually started with Unbreakable. I actually started wanting to commentate and be a part of tennis and and do it for, I don't know if I would even say a living, it's a passion of mine, but uh, it started with Unbreakable, everything did. And uh, Jessica Halloran was the biggest, to be honest with you, uh, reason why I did everything. We had conversations years earlier and she really understood me and she understood the pain that I was in and the trauma. And uh, she was such a big support in telling my story. And we ultimately went into it going, this story needs to be told. And I, as I say, at the end of Unbreakable, if it helps one person, it's mission accomplished. That's what I wanted all along. It actually never was even about me. I didn't realize how much it would help me and that all of this weight would be lifted off my shoulders the day the book comes out. Mm-hmm. And I always thought, look, I went through a lot of these things. I know what it's like. I know what I didn't have. I didn't have help. We didn't have that at the time. We didn't talk about a lot of these things that we do more now, even though we can still be better. There was so much stigma about talking about a lot of these things. The The conversation around it wasn't normal. And uh, we had this dream, I would say really a dream of telling my story just to help someone out there because I think deep down she really knew we could. I didn't. <laughs> I kind of always... I thought I didn't even know if anyone was going to even buy my book or listen to it. So, yeah, I think Jess is the biggest reason why we are here, why I've told my story, why I am the person I am today, why I've survived, healed, and now I can actually go another step and actually help others. And uh, to actually be able to 
talk about tennis. And like you say, it kind of came at the same time that I told my story. And I don't think that that's a coincidence uh, to be able to now talk tennis, to do interviews with players and uh, yeah, to do it at the biggest stage, to do it at Grand Slams. And I'm just very fortunate and I'm very grateful and lucky to have that opportunity. Part of the success of a professional athlete lies in their mindset, right? Not just in their their physical skills and ability. And in tennis, especially the ability to block everything out and to come back and play that next point and to not think about everything that's going on around you and all the consequences, but just to play that next shot, play that next ball. One of the things we know is a hallmark of, of living with PTSD and trauma is also blocking out experiences of of your past. I wonder if that was something that happened for you and how you were able to tap back into things that had happened to you as as a child and trauma that had Mm -hmm. happened to you as a child to be able to tell that story. Yeah, I did. Look, and like I said, I didn't talk about it for a very long time. And that's what often victims and survivors of any kind of abuse or anything that they've gone through... Uh, that will often happen. And um, I didn't talk about it because I was afraid. Obviously, I was afraid of my father. Mm. Uh, I was very scared of him, the abuse that I went through when you're, you know, when you're kicked and punched to the point of being unconscious. And when you're going through that for 15 years, you are so, you are, uh, that fear is so hard to explain of how afraid you are of that person. But it also turns into almost being afraid of anything out there. And, that's how I felt. And also uh, what I said earlier, I was raised, I was taught to be silent and to never, ever say anything. I actually start this book fearless with uh, what my father used to tell me all the time, which was, don't you dare ever say anything. Mm. You know, don't you dare or I will kill you. And th- those were the words that I had. And a lot of people that are abused, this is what you hear. It's all about silence. That's how abusers and perpetrators uh, function. That's how they keep control and that's how they manipulate and put you down. So uh, for a very long time, yes, I put on a brave face, but it only goes on for so long. You can't do that forever. And we've seen that with uh, everybody that has come out and talked about it. And Grace Tame is such an inspiration. She is one person the women that came out with the Me Too movement. I'll go to athletes as well, well, Simone Biles and the whole US gymnastics team and what they've been able to do and and change. You can do it, but you can't do it forever. And also it is, uh, if you can do it, time to speak up for others, others that don't have a voice or feel like they have a voice or the courage or the strength. So we need to do it if we can for everybody else. You've spoken recently, including an interview with Stella magazine about your experience of living with an eating disorder. And one of the things that you said really struck me, which is that you hadn't spoken about it publicly for so long because you didn't understand it. Can you help me understand what that means? Yeah, same thing, uh, similar to like you talk about PTSD and uh, I very deliberately in this book went in depth about my eating disorder, which I didn't understand for a very long time, for for 15 years. And I thought, oh, 
maybe everyone kind of feels like this mm. about food and has this relationship with food. So yes, for me, it's a binging and starving disorder where I would eat up to 10 times, 10 meals a day in one day. Then I would starve myself completely, no food, nothing for 48 hours, even with training, even as uh, the, the hard training that we th- go through um, as athletes. And it, obviously at first it was so hard, but then you kind of almost get used to it and torturing your body. And uh, I was doing this while I was competing and playing. So I was already so far behind everyone else by doing that. But even more importantly, even after I retired, because I didn't understand it, because in a way I've never heard or seen anyone talk about it. I couldn't resonate with anyone for a very long time with things that I went through. And that's why I have such a passion for telling my story and doing it now, because there might be someone out there that sees my story, that one person, and it might change everything for them. And yeah, my eating disorder is something that, yeah, I've battled for a very long time. Didn't understand it because I didn't know what it was. And I didn't know that I was battling to that extent. But then at the same time, especially kind of in the last year or two, I knew that that was my comfort. Food and eating was my comfort. And it was the one thing that didn't disappoint because mm. when you're disappointed and, and let down by so many people, especially your family, <laughs> which are supposed to kind of be your rock and there no matter what, that was then my safety. And, and that was, I went to food. A lot of people that go through trauma, will battle things like certain eating disorders or addictions or mental health battles. And I've had that. So I finally kind of understood that that was because of my trauma. Once I started dealing with it and healing from it, and it did start with unbreakable, but it was only the start. Uh, I could now understand it and actually uh, deal with it, get help. And now I'm really understanding it, where it comes from, how my emotions work. And now I'm actually starting to find that more balanced and healthy lifestyle. I watched with, look, I feel like I was fist pumping from from the couch um, earlier this year during the Australian Open when you, if I was writing the media article, I'd say hit back at some of the the (laughs) online body shaming that that you experienced uh, when you were commentating during the Australian Open. Can you tell me a bit about what you had to put up with and also why it was important for you to say something, particularly about the nature of online abuse and bullying? It was extremely important and it was uh, something that I had to talk about openly, publicly and fight it. I did it last year and then I did it this year because when the summer of tennis and the Australian Open comes around, there is so much attention and that includes on everybody that's in the public eye and that, that includes us commentators and hosts and TV personalities. And it's always around that time that there's so much judgment going around. And I actually spoke about it too, like I said, a couple of years, and I got a lot of support. But this year, something shifted, something changed. This year, everybody stood up, not just people that follow me and my story, but everybody, even people that didn't know me, the media as well. There was so much support and I'm so grateful for that. But yeah, I'm I'm very happy because they haven't just uh, stood up for what I was kind of saying, which was we need to 
really talk openly about body shaming, about trolling, social media abuse, and actually we really need to pay attention to it. it needs to stop, especially I think towards women and looks uh, and, and women that are in the public eye. But yeah, everybody stood up and listened and really supported it. Articles were amazing. Like you said, the media as well used their platform to actually spread the word. And I'm so grateful for that. But why did that happen? Because sharing my story and sharing what I was going through, the messages that I was getting, which were vile, and I posted them and I posted them on purpose Mm. so that people see what we go through. Uh, It changed something. People stood up and said, enough is enough. Because people that are on social media, and I'm only on Instagram, I'm actually using it for something good. I'm trying to use it for something positive. We should be able to do that without having to face all of this it's not even judgment. It's actually really mean comments that you never know how they might affect people. And I feel like it's such an important battle to fight Mm. because we can't just sweep it under the rug. It is not normal just because someone can be behind a keyboard and, and write something. And I know that I can use the block button and trust me, I do. But that's not the point. We should be able to have this freedom to be out there. I'm not hurting anyone. In fact, I'm using it for something positive. And then you get all these backlash. But also, it was about body shaming as well. I I was body shamed. And it's not okay. I should be, if I am judged, let's say, it should be on my work ethic, on my commentary, uh, on how much good I do. I really work so hard at being kind to people and all of these different things. And and that's all of a sudden, nobody looks at that. It's whether you're a size four or 10 or 16. My measurements and my size does not define me, my IQ and everything that I do out there. And sadly, that's what we got to. That's what I was judged on. And that's all people saw. Uh, so it was disappointing because I know that I was not the only one. And on the other hand, I was working so hard at my commentary and when I go out there and interview players and I really try and make it fun for everybody, people watching at home, people in the stands, and you're trying to do all this really good work also on the side with my charity work and everything else and it's not recognised when all of these body shaming comments or articles come out. So that was really important to fight that and I said I'm going to continue doing it and I still say that, that I will continue doing that because we can't just let it slide. Enough is enough. And also I want to fight for that, you know, 14-year-old girl that sees that and goes, oh, my God, I actually feel like I'm I'm hurt. I have a voice here. That's who I'm fighting for, not even myself. I'm fighting for, for those girls and for everyone else. Uh, they are lucky to have you. You know, I think about, uh, you know, my own teenage years and the kind of television shows and movies and magazines and, and what was put in front of us as commentary that meant that it was normalised to think that uh, someone's worth was connected to their weight. And, you know, I think I think 13-year-old me would have loved to have you to look up to. Well, I did, except I was Thank looking you. up to your tennis at the time. But nonetheless, also, if it had been yeah. now, would have been yeah. looking up to you for another reason. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I know that as, uh, and you talk about in, in the book, you talk about the fortune that you had made through your incredible work on the tennis court that your father took from you. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that mental health care and support is really expensive. 
in, in this country especially and not always easy to access. It costs money to, to access the right kind of support to be able to deal with the kind of trauma that you've been through and that you've, you've shared in the book. I imagine there are a whole lot of people listening who want to make sure and want to know that you're okay and you've been able to rebuild your own economic security after it was stolen from you. Yeah, I am, but I, I talked about that again on purpose because I, it was that was also let's say financial abuse as mm. well uh, to give away millions and millions. But to be honest, uh, I wanted freedom and happiness, and that's all my father cared about. So I thought that I would get it with that. But unfortunately, with abuse and abuses, it it, it never stops, and and they're never satisfied. But yeah, I've been able to absolutely rebuild. But when you talk about the cost of, of getting help and the cost of getting mental health help and being able to do it consistently with a with a professional. But also when it comes to domestic violence and women then also uh, not having that opportunity to start, I think, from the beginning when they leave, especially when they leave with kids as well. So that kind of Equity as well is really big. I talk about that uh, towards the end of my book. And I think moving forward as well, I don't know what that is right now, and I'm kind of glad you touched on it, but that's what I want. That's the work I want to do. That's what I want to see how we can change things and make it that people have mental health professionals and the help that they need more accessible and that it's not that expensive, but same goes for people that leave a domestic violence and a family violence situation and how do they rebuild? I spoke about it earlier this year on uh, Q&A actually and the whole uh, conversation around superannuation and whether it's worth having something where, you know, a small portion, if you really do find yourself out on the street, which domestic violence and family violence 99% of the time you leave, you are out on the street, especially with kids, whether it's worth having something that you can just withdraw something to start again. Because the numbers of women and girls going back to a domestic violence um, family or home is 90% within the first six weeks because it is so hard to start again. So yeah, I want to continue those conversations and I want to continue that on a bigger level so that we can do something and make it easier for people. I was basically, when I left at 19 out on the street, it's just that I was lucky that I was going to the next tournament and my my next paycheck was within within a few weeks, but I still had to worry about it and go, okay, I've got nothing here. I've just got my racket bag and I've got my suitcase. I'm here at a tournament and what happens from here? Like if I need something, I had no money. So yeah, I know what that kind of feels like. And uh, I hope that in the future we can do more. And that includes getting that mental health uh, help and making it more accessible. Elena, I want to thank you for joining me again on the weekend briefing. It's been a few years since uh, we've had you on the show. And uh, I have so enjoyed reading Fearless. There's a, a line in it where you say, I am not fully healed. I am not fully recovered. I am a work in progress. I think I think we're all works in progress. But the next thing you say is that you're also a fighter and you're someone who fights not just for yourself, but for so many people around you and so many people you've never even met. So I want to say thank you so much for that. 
Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for having me. I think, yeah, like you said, especially if you've gone through trauma and you will always kind of be healing. But uh, once you start that process and, and you can really uh, look forward and that's what the end of my or towards the end of my book I talk about. It's about that acceptance and moving forward, knowing that you're worthy. Your past doesn't define you or defeat you. And it's all about hanging in there. But most importantly, and I think that that's why I got through a lot of things, which is actually a question I get asked often is how I did it, is uh, that belief, that belief in yourself. Never give up on yourself and know that you can get through it and, and never letting anyone put you down and always fighting and always believing and most importantly, never giving up on your dreams and on yourself. So yeah, I hope that people can definitely get that message as well towards the end of my book. And uh, ultimately, I do want it to be a book of hope and strength. So yeah, that's my wish with this book. And if I can help again, like I say, even with Unbreakable, if it helps that one person and if it changes their life and and if it saves their life, it's so worth it. Um, You don't get to save lives every day in your own life. So if I can do it, I'll be the happiest person in the world. And that's what I want my legacy to be. And thank you for giving me the opportunity again to talk about my book and have this conversation. You are so inspirational to me and and you are the definition of inspirational and being a fighter and and, and having that courage. So uh, it really is an honor for me to talk to you. Well, that's it for Jamila's conversation with Yelena Dokic. And you can get your hands on Yelena's new book, Fearless, Finding the Power to Thrive at Any Good Bookstore. And remember, if anything in this conversation brought up some issues or feelings for you, there are people you can talk to 24-7. 1-800-RESPECT or that's 1-800-737-732. And there's also Lifeline at 13 11 14. But now it's time for the list with Helen Smith. Alrighty, it's time for the weekend list. It's Helen here, producer of the Weekend Briefing, and I'll be pumping out some recommendations this week. My first recommendation is a TV show. Surprise, surprise, I've been binging again. So Beckham on Netflix, that's my first recommendation. If you love the story of Bex and Posh, this is for you. Or if you kind of like knew about a few of the scandals or you grew up with the Spice Girls, but but you don't know the ins and outs, I highly recommend this. Now, it does go into the football world quite a bit and goes into how, like, Bex kind of made his start. But I actually really enjoyed that. But I think that's because I've been binging Wrexham as well. I'm kind of in this UK football world at the moment. But I think it still could have focused a little bit more on Victoria, if I, if I do say. But I really just loved how... The show kind of highlights their love for one another and how much effort they went into seeing each other and being with each other at the start of their relationship. So David Beckham would fly, drive, answer the phone at any hour of the night just to be with Victoria. Like someone's going to drive five hours just to spend an hour with you, drive three hours to spend like 30 minutes with you. That, I don't know if that's not love, then I don't know what it is. Like that is commitment. And he would just answer that phone any time of the day, just working around Victoria's schedule when she was doing all her Spice Girl stuff and touring the world as an icon. So I really love that aspect. I didn't know much about that. But 
Another thing, it does touch on the cheating scandals and rumours between David and Victoria, David doing the cheating. But if you really want a deep dive, I would definitely recommend Shameless the Podcast. So Mitch and Zara, the hosts, have done an amazing three-part ep that they've just re-released called David and Victoria Beckham, a special from the archives. But after watching this and re-listening to the Shameless podcast, it really, it just made me love Victoria even more. So that's my first rec. Now, my second recommendation is Who Killed Jill Dando on Netflix. So it's about this famous TV news presenter, and I'd actually never heard of her, but she's pretty much just like the Princess Diana of news presenters. And I'm not giving anything away here, but the story is based on Jill being murdered at her doorstep. So the resources that went into this murder investigation are outstanding, but at the same time, the series points out all of these key parts of evidence that they missed. And it's just an extraordinary story. The investigation went on for well over a year and the police like really had to be careful with who they were naming or who they were making a suspect or potentially arresting because they said that person would then have been the most hated person in Britain. That's how big Jill was and she really had an effect on her viewers. Now, the ending did kind of leave me hanging, but it's still a great watch and I'd love to know what you think. But if you're a true crime junkie like me, I think you're going to love it. She was so polished and so professional. In many ways, I think people saw Jill as a TV Diana. So glamorous. It's wonderful. Jill was at the top of our game. She was the nation's sweetheart. The golden girl of British television. Murdered on her doorstep. In broad daylight. Now that's it for this week. Thank you so much for being with us and tuning in as always. It's a pleasure. Now, if you want more of the weekend briefing, you can find us on the Listener app. You can download the Listener app in the App Store and you can follow us there. Otherwise, you can follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And hey, why not give us a rating and review for this fabulous interview with Yelena Dokic. And FYI, you can actually rate and review every app. So we will be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your earphones along with some amazing interviews. Stay safe, everyone. Listener.